Well, I want to thank you for being so patient as we had to reschedule this class many, many times. Um, hopefully, it won't kind of seem uh, like the climb, we missed the climax and it's, uh, you know, forgot everything before. But we had so many different things coming up uh, with, uh, with our church, it just made sense to wait. But I'm thankful we're back and uh, we're going to start singing Psalm 16. And I'd like to do that. I was thinking of saving it for the end, but you never know how long it'll go. So uh, let's start at the beginning, page 23, Psalm 16. And the reason I want to sing this together is because the last two chapters of the confession are about where this all ends, right? It's about uh, death, heaven, the resurrection, eternal life. Um, and that's what this is all about, right? I mean, if, if, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, I mean, our faith is in vain. It's all about the fact that we're, there's a, we go somewhere after we die. It's either heaven or hell. As Christians, our hope is that it'll, it's going to be heaven. And our bodies will also be resurrected. And I have explained this, I know, many times, and you can hear a sermon on it that I did for seminary, that I did for you early on when I was here, if you want to hear it again in sermon audio. Uh, but I'll review what, what I know you're pretty familiar with. Psalm 16, uh, Peter preaches it in the great uh, Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. And he quotes most of this psalm. And he says that David was a prophet, and David knew that he was speaking of Jesus Christ. And specifically what Peter is drawing out is that the Messiah that David is consciously prophesying of would not stay dead. His body would be raised from the grave. And so then Peter says, look, you all know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Therefore, he is the Messiah. Notice he doesn't try to prove Jesus has been raised from the dead. They're all, they all know it. He tries to prove, therefore, he is the Messiah of Psalm 16 that he's quoting. That's what this is about. And notice David, though he knows he's talking about Jesus, rejoices for himself as well because he knows that in Jesus he will be raised from the dead. And he will be in God's special presence for eternity with his body raised, not just his soul in the intermediate state. We'll talk about that tonight. And so notice what a glorious thing it is. He says, in your presence, 11, verse 11 is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. This is what it's about, Christian. Being with Jesus face to face in heaven forever with no sin, no tears, no pain, no problems. Living without any problems. Uh, but notice in verse, uh, the verses leading up to verse 10, or to highlight verse 10, he says, the reason I have joy is my soul in grave will not dwell. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. God's going, God did raise Jesus from the grave. And 1 Corinthians 15 and other scriptures point out that he's the first fruits of our resurrection. So we are not going to be left in the grave. Our loved ones have gone before us. Their bodies are not going to be left in the grave. There is a resurrection when Christ comes back. And then we enjoy this amazing experience of being in God's perfect holy presence with our new resurrected bodies that can't sin and our souls that won't sin after we've uh, been transformed going to heaven. So it's a, it's a glorious thing to be thinking about. I want to sing about it since it is the, the last study. Again, next week we'll have a wrapping it up class. It won't just be, here's what to remember to do. And you know, I, I have a few things I'll still teach, a few handouts I'll give you for your benefit as well. But this is the climax or the, the finishing of the class, chapters 32 and 33, and it's, it's all about what Psalm 16 is singing about. It's our hope in the resurrection in Christ. So uh, what I'd like to do for sake of time 
is uh, start with verse 5. No, actually, excuse me, I'd like to start with verses, verse 1, and then we'll skip ahead to verse 5 and sing the rest, okay? Da, 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 da. Lord, keep me, for I trust in Thee. To God thus was my speech. Thou art my God, and unto Thee my goodness doth not reach. Verse 5. God is of mine inheritance and cup the portion. The lot that fallen is to me, thou dost maintain alone. Unto me happily the Excel. I bless the Lord because he doth by counsel me conduct, and in the seasons of the night my reins do me instruct. Before me still the Lord I set, sith it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move it be. Because of this my heart is glad, and joy shall be expressed. Even by my glory and my flesh, in confidence shall rest. Because my soul in grave to dwell Shall not be left by thee Nor wilt thou give thine holy one Corruption to see Thou wilt me show the path of life, of joys there is full store. Before thy face at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Amen. Well, I think that summarizes what I would have taught tonight. We'll just go home. No, I guess I should still teach, but I almost feel like, how do I follow that? That's what this is all about. But with that, let's go ahead and we'll still finish the confession of faith. So again, um, on your notes, you're going to want to update it. It says this class is August 31st. That's when I was going to teach it, but we had some things come up uh, and then we kept having things come up as a church. So 
if it matters to you, the date that we're doing the class is actually September 21st. And what we're studying tonight is chapter 32 of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead, and then chapter 33 of the last judgment. And as I note in parentheses, this is why all of the above matters. And what I mean is everything else that's come before. The whole chat confession, everything about Christianity, this is why it all matters. This is, this is where we should be looking all the time, okay? All those other things are so important as we are here, as we're living. Um, and especially certain parts like justification by faith alone, uh, those kinds of things uh, are how we can ha- know we're going here. But this is what it's all about. This is the climax, really. So first we'll start with chapter 32, of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. And uh, I give a little intro here by J.I. Packer in the notes. He writes, death is decisive for destiny. From then on, the godly and the ungodly reap what they sowed in this life. John Murray also soberly warns us, the ultimate state of bliss or woe is sealed by the event of death. So the question for you is, what will be your final eternal end? It begins here and now. Excuse me, I need to grab my water bottle. Do I, uh... oh good, it's right here. My cold is just catching me a little bit. Okay. So, this ought to cause us to remember, what, what did we study in God's providence with Derek Thomas and the video series through guiding us through Pilgrim's Progress in the morning, last Lord's Day, dealing with death, right? Christian struggles to get through the river, and he points out how John Bunyan is making sure Christians understand that there's no fear of death, but death can be a difficult thing to face, a difficult thing to go through, and it is a final thing. Remember, Pilgrim starts his journey not wanting to be in the city of destruction, but the celestial city, right? It's, it's all about what happens when we die. And again, as I mentioned in the class, when we would do um, diagnostic questions, I guess you would say, for evangelism and apologetics class in seminary, we'd go to some of the big universities in town, Carnegie Mellon, University of Pittsburgh, and we would just ask students these questions, and the goal is to kind of lead them towards, you know, would you like to hear about how to be saved, saved from death? One of the questions you ask is, where, what will happen to you when you die? Are you ready to die? Where will you go when you die? And so often the answer is, I don't like to think about that. I don't want to talk about that. <clears throat> the reason is, if you're not ready for it, you don't want to deal with it. You know? But dealing with death is being ready for it. The Christian may fear the process. The Christian may struggle uh, in the end. It could be a very strong physical struggle. It depends. Everybody's situation is different. But the, the truth is, when death happens, it's over. It's final. And there's no going back. There's no redoing it. You know, even as Dr. Thomas said, there's no redoing death. Pray the Lord will help us die a good death. You can't go back and do it again. I'm not sure any of us really would ask for that. But there's no going back to live your life again. There's no going back to be able to choose between Christ and the kingdom of heaven or the devil and the kingdom of hell. There's no going back to choose. Today's the day of salvation. Know where you are right now with the Lord, okay? All of you, little ones, you just heard about an 11-year-old who has bone cancer. 
There are lots of children your age and even the young ones who are facing death. And none of us knows that won't be us at any phase of life. So where are you with Christ right now? Where are you with eternal things right now? It won't all be somber, but it is a really serious discussion. It's what it's all about. We remember the wages of sin is death. We're all dying because of sin. And then there's the second death. But the revelation says those who are in Christ will not taste the second death but have eternal life. Okay, let's look at chapter 32, section 1. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Beside these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Pardon me, I think I'm going to pop a cough drop in real quick here. Excuse me if it's a little noisy with my teeth, but <clears throat> I kind of feel cough coming on, so I'm going to, going to uh, try to spare you some coughing. When I get started, it's hard to stop someone, so please excuse the cough drop. Um, Letter A. So I have a, a few subsections to explain this, this section. First of all, and I already kind of started this thought with the introduction, but you will die. You will die. I will die. I always think of uh, Eleanor, one of her favorite scriptures. Uh, she always, I'm, I've been at funerals, and if they don't preach on something along the line of it, she gets mad. But uh, in Hebrews, I always want to say 928, but I usually get the reference wrong, maybe 927. If I'm, if I'm in the vicinity, shame on me. But um, what's that? Oh, I am right? Okay, now I need you to help me to get started with it. But it's um, for, you know, we all, as it is appointed, thank you, as it is appointed for all men to die, and after that, the judgment. Thank you. Sometimes you just have to get a little kick to get the wheels turning there. Thank you. It's the cough drop, yes. I wish I could say That's going to be my excuse the rest of the week here. Um, I'll need a new one next week, so I'll call on you to help me out. Um, yeah, so the, the, our, the day that we die is appointed. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, everything is not involved in God's plan. You know, we can't say, oh, well, it must be the day I'm appointed to die. I'm going to jump off a building. No, I, it's not in our hands, but it's a sobering thing to think about. In a way, you can't get around it. We're not talking about fatalism, but... Because that's the case, prepare. Be prepared, right? And after that, the judgment, right? Uh, so you will die. Back to the notes. Your bodies are already rotting away, an awful sign that believers and unbelievers still suffer the curse that came upon us all because of the fall. Quote, we have never really become accustomed to living alongside death. That's J.I. Packer. We're always in denial. And you know, I heard, a, I think, a sermon today. Uh, I think I was, I don't know what I was doing, but I heard it recently. I heard a talk of it recently. Oh, I know what it was. It doesn't matter. Um, try, I'm trying to remember who said it, and I don't think I can pull it off. Uh, 
but they were pointing out that uh, generations ago, especially during the times of Puritans, you know, most people didn't live, you know, oh, I, well, it was Derek Thomas, wasn't it? Yep, it was in the Pilgrim's Progress class again. They didn't live, most of them didn't make it past much of their 30s or 40s, right? Um, to get, most of the ministers didn't get to the 80s. I mean, you know, we live a lot longer than most of human history does on the whole, and we have so much medical care, we have so many things to try to push death aside and think we can somehow escape it and get past it. Yeah? Yeah, John Owen lost 10 of his children, and then the one that survived didn't make it past, I think, 20, they said, or 21, yeah. So that was a great reality then. I do remember Carl Truman, who talked about this in a, in a mortification of spin message. He said, you know, celebrating death? Funerals should not be called celebrations. He says, death is a curse. It's loss. It's pain. It doesn't mean we don't have hope and we have comfort in where our loved ones are. But as Paul says to the Philippians, for you, it's better if I stay, right? And yes, it will be, rec- it will be taken care of and fixed in eternity for Christians. But that doesn't remove what it is now. And he says, you know, he says, we just push everything away. Uh, he says, you know, it used to be you couldn't get away from death all around you just going to church every Sunday. Usually you go to church and there's a cemetery right there. That's where you were buried. But now we just push it away nice and tidy, you know. And a lot of times we don't, our, our, our elderly, this doesn't mean they can't be put in homes and things when they need special care, but, you know, we're, we're all so busy and you know, we just, we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with the idea that we could die, you know. We want to push it away. And I, I know I've shared with you my experience when I lost my first wife. It was amazing to me how certain Christians wouldn't even speak to me about it. Like, even when I mentioned it, getting introduced to someone, it was like I didn't say it. Like, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Christians who don't want to even think about death. We can't get away from it. It is our reality. And just because we can hide for a while longer, and we can get the Botox and the facelifts and the suctions, I'm amazed, especially what Fernanda tells me about Brazil, and I don't mean to be prejudiced nation, but... Some of the stories I hear, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, it's very common. Like, it's almost a given, some of the stuff that happens. But I, I'm sorry, certain ladies at certain ages, I'm like, why are you doing that? Let alone, why are you dressed like that? I mean, and I don't, I mean, nobody should dress like certain ways. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's a point where you just have to accept your age. And you're not fooling anyone with how you're trying to hide it. And the Bible says, just as much for the lady as for the man, the gray hair is a crown of glory. You know, um, as to, and ages to be respected. We're just doing everything we can. I still remember, I heard about someone, uh, some celebrity, I think, who's long dead, had their body frozen, I don't know what you call it, so that one day, if they find the cure for whatever he died from, they can bring him back to life. Stop and think about it. Even if they do find the cure for it, you're still dead. I mean, they're not going to be able to resurrect you to heal you. You're going to be dead. It's just how much we try so hard to get away from it. What's that? Ted Williams. Ted Williams? Okay, I'm not, I'm not familiar. Um, but I, I kind of imagine it's more than one celebrity, most likely, right? Um, let me get back to the notes. My apologies. So, we never really get accustomed to living alongside death. We avoid it. But your souls, which are who you are... We're made to last forever. So while it's true your bodies are going to die, your souls continue on. And we know our all bodies will be raised at the resurrection. Some to life, some to death. We'll get into that. Uh, your souls are not eternal. 
That is, you have a beginning. God has no beginning. However, your souls are immortal. You will have no end. This is against annihilationism. Some people believe in annihilationism, which means at death your soul doesn't exist anymore. Why do they do that? Because the idea of hell is horrible. I mean, seriously, if you stop and think about eternal hell, I almost faint when I try to consider it sometimes. Gideon? Gideon. Good boy. I mean, if you stop and try to think about it, I don't know how more people aren't running to Christ if you stop and think about it. But again, we want to block it out. So we block out the idea of eternal death, eternal hell. But your souls will continue on. Now, the souls of Christians will go to Abraham's bosom, and the souls of unbelievers will be in the belly of hell. Two sides of what we call the intermediate state chasm. The intermediate state. So before the resurrection, before when Jesus comes back and the sheep are separated from the goats and uh, the goats get body, their old bodies to go to hell, the sheep get their new bodies to go to heaven. Before that happens, our souls are still self-conscious either in hell or in heaven. So you already go to the intermediate state. There is no soul sleep after death. That's what others believe. There's soul sleep. I don't know where they think the souls are. Some people think maybe kind of in the bodies, which is why they kind of seem to be very skimmish to go to a cemetery or have anything to do with memorials. But there's no soul sleep after death. Both the souls of the righteous and the wicked will be conscious and active. Can you think of a a particular parable? I believe, like my one professor said, it's actually probably a true story, not just a parable. But can you think of a story Christ tells that gives a clear picture of this? Intermediate state? Good, Debbie. The rich man and Lazarus. Right? After the rich man dies and Lazarus dies, the poor man, the the rich man's crying out from hell, Father Abraham, please get me out of this place. He looks over the chasm, which Abraham says cannot be crossed. There's no coming over it. It's done. But there's some kind of awareness of, I could have been there and I'm not there and I never can be now. He says, if I can't, could you please at least have Lazarus come and touch my tongue with the water to give me some relief? He says, it's not possible. Lazarus is consciously in heaven. He's aware that Lazarus is there. This is the intermediate state. Okay? Um, Their souls are there awaiting the resurrection of their bodies, but they're already in bliss or in torment. You could say it this way. In a sense, it's, um, for those in hell, it's as if they're awaiting their execution. You know? Notice the extreme contrast of heaven, spoken of as light and glory in the confession, and hell, spoken of as torments and darkness, even during the intermediate state, even before the final judgment. See also that everyone in heaven, on earth, and in hell is waiting for Christ's final kingly conquering work on judgment day as the final piece of human history. Everybody's waiting for that. Uh, you know, not that the theology in this is great or I necessarily recommend the movie, but when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, you know, there's that famous movie with Patrick Swayze, Ghost. And, and I think it is, even though now you go back, if you see the movie, it's not the same kind of graphics as today, but it's still frightening. When some people die and, and they weren't going to heaven, it's a frightening thing. Their spirit is kind of there, and I don't think they quite realize at first that they're dead. And then you start to hear this horrible guttural growl. It almost sounds like somebody throwing up, you know? And then the shadows come up out of the ground and they, they try to run away and they don't, they all 
get over them like a bunch of animals and they drag them into hell. This, that may not be exactly how it goes, but this is the reality people need to be thinking about and not joking about. You want to be saved from hell, you want to be saved into heaven. Letter B. The last sentence about no other places mentioned in scripture after death teaches against the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, which denies what scripture teaches about the absolutely final places of heaven and hell during the intermediate state, but also the sufficiency of Christ's final sacrifice. There are no second chances after death to get right with God before judgment day. Uh, If you don't know, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that, frankly, it seems as if they would say most people when they die haven't built up enough credit by good works. That you can see the problem. This goes back to earlier chapters. And so they kind of need to burn off their bad stuff in purgatory and they kind of need to, you know, earn more, uh, enough to be able to go into heaven. There's this idea of a purgatory place between those two places or something. And uh, if you look at the footnotes, there's a lot of nuances to that. I'm not going to go over the footnotes with you, but it's it's frankly frankly interesting and also really disappointing. Um, And so the confession is, again, deliberately denying a tenet of Roman Catholicism. Remember, that's a significant part of this is we're going to be more reformed, more like uh, our brothers in Scotland, more like the continent that's reformed. We're going to be less Roman Catholic. We're going to be reforming in our, especially our practice and worship and government, but including doctrine. They're, they're going out of their way to deny this. And denying it at this time was particularly a big deal. Okay, um, uh, Section 2 of chapter 32. At the last day, such as are found alive, sorry, I lost my place. After the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Man is his soul. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of people get, I think, just not think it through enough. And they'll say, oh, we are our soul and our body. We're not fully man unless we're soul and body. I understand they're trying to emphasize the resurrection. But one thing I've said a long time ago, if a man's at war and loses a leg and he comes back without a leg, he may feel like he's less of a man. He's still a whole man. Because man is our soul. We are who we are as our soul. And remember, that's important because our bodies are going to be rotting in the grave. Our soul, who we are, is going to be in heaven, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you more about that, but I want to emphasize that because a lot of people try to emphasize, rightly emphasizing, we do need our resurrected bodies. Uh, That's the final best thing. But what I want you to see is man is his soul, but he was made with a house, his body. So the scripture speaks about the body as a house, I heard, maybe this was Derek Thomas again, forgive me, as a tabernacle, you know, almost a tent. Um, It's not who we are, it's the house of who we are. Thomas Watson said earlier, we noted, uh, the body is a sheath, or later he speaks of the body as clothes for the soul. So the soul is who we are. The body is our clothes. The body is our house, okay? It doesn't make it less important. It's very important. We're not teaching Gnosticism. The Christianity emphasizes the importance of our bodies and that they need to be resurrected and, and healed. 
but who we are is our soul. Man is essentially an embodied spirit. That's uh, Roland Ward. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, our body is spoken of as a house. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and following, Paul speaks of going into the third heaven, unsure of whether in the body, yet he, his soul, his person, went. I'm, I'm really drawing on some readings from Gordon Clark to point that out. He says, I went. Whether I was in my body or not, I don't know, but I went. So the body is the house or the clothes. But I was there. Well, it might have been without the body, but I was there. Okay? Uh, can you think of another example? Uh, well, I'll just give you a hint so I don't go too long. Yeah? I should have got the mic out so people can hear the questions. Who? Who? Well, Thomas, oh, Paul, Paul was speaking of himself, yeah, in the scriptures. Well, no, that's, that's a great question. It's one of those unusual, mysterious things. I don't, I don't think we can say for sure. He's even saying, I'm not really sure whether I was with my body or not. But the point of it is, he says, I was there, or Clark points out, he, his, he was there. Me as a man or a woman, my person, I was there. So it's the soul. The, whether or not the body was there, I'm not sure, but I was. Yeah, Paul speaking. Um, but then he, was not, he wasn't dead because he's writing about it and he's still ministering on earth, right? Um, uh, I'm thinking of the Mount Transfiguration as well, Moses. Uh, Jesus spends time talking with Elijah and Moses, and Moses in particular, you know, uh, the angel and the and devil, I believe the scriptures teach us, uh, had a fight over his body. His, but he's in heaven. We see his soul in heaven talking with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there, Moses. The person is there, and he'll get his body. He'll get his house back, as we all will. Um, an aspect of judgment for sin is that we die and are separated from our houses, but not because bodies are evil. Rather, Christianity teaches that both soul, which is man, and flesh, his house, were created good, but both were corrupted in the fall. Thus, we need our souls reborn, the first resurrection, and then our bodies, the second resurrection, the, quote, time of restitution of all things, Acts chapter 3, verse 21. The bodies of Christians living with Jesus return, uh, excuse me, living when Jesus returns will be spiritually transfigured so they can enter heaven. You know, when Jesus comes back, some of us won't have been, won't have died, we'll still be in our bodies And so they'll be transformed, right? Twinkling in of an eye, that kind of things are said in the scriptures. We must assume the same happened in the heavenly entrances of Enoch and Elijah. Those are two times in scripture where they go up, right? In the chariot, they go up in the body. They, they, they They didn't die and have their souls separated. God took them alive in the heavens. These are amazing kind of mysterious things. Yes, Mrs. Corson. Only easy questions, by the way. No, just kidding. <laughs> <coughs> what about the, 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 Christ, the believer who died uh-huh. and their body gets cremated? And say, for instance, they either go into a niche or some of them have their bodies spread in the ocean or uh-huh. the woods. Yeah. What happens to those people's bodies? Okay, good question. I think, I think there's really two issues to deal with within your question. 
And I'm, I'm going to address the, the, the most pertinent one you're asking, but then I want to make a comment on, I think, kind of what you're also asking. Or if you're not, I think it'll raise it in others' minds. The question was, I'm going to repeat the questions because I forgot to pass out the mic tonight, um, which is probably good. I would have done my Lown Lidgard episode with Mr. Renner at some point. So, um, Okay. So it's the same answer, right? Because here's the thing. Any of our bodies, although, boy, they're good at trying to preserve our bodies now, right? Put them in big vaults and all that stuff. But eventually, you open any of those things, the body's not going to be the same. You wait long enough, this, the headstone's not even going to hardly be there, right? And there's plenty of Christians or anybody who have died in the oceans, right? The, the scriptures say the dead will be raised from the oceans and every places. But look, I mean, somebody's eaten by a shark, or somebody's burned to death. I mean, there's all different ways our bodies might be destroyed. Not voluntarily, though, right? So I think we have to conclude that a Christian who is cremated, uh, it's the same, right? Because their, their bodies will be miraculously brought back together, right? It's going to be miraculous. The same thing about, you know, it says ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Adam was made from the earth, right? So God will bring us our bodies back together. He can do that easily. Actually, it's interesting. Thomas Watson talks a lot about that in, um, I think it's the body of divinity. He says, this is no problem. God can draw back bodies. But what I think you might be asking, because I think you would understand, like if, if I die in the Pacific Ocean, I hope that's not what happens. But let's say I do, and my body eventually goes down to the floor, and I'm eaten by fish, right? You would understand that God will somehow miraculously bring my body back together and raise it from the waters, right? Uh, I mean, I, we can't explain that for any of us, but the truth is, if we're buried uh, the way we're buried now, six feet under, although in Christ's time, they were not buried like that. They were buried, this is important, related to the baptism we talked a while ago. They were buried in these tombs usually, right? Uh, our, the, the truth is, over time, every Christian's body years ago is gone, right? So God is miraculous, and he'll just bring it back together. But I wonder if you're asking about the morality of choosing cremation. Are you a little bit wondering about that? Um, and if not, maybe I won't spend too much time on it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, pretty much everybody, because at some point in the grave, our bodies are going to be dirt. They're going to be eaten by the worms. Everybody's body is ultimately in the same situation, right? I mean, nobody's body is going to be perfectly preserved, especially those thousands of years before us. Those bodies, you're not going to find them. You know, they're probably in some. They're probably making flowers in someone's garden, <laughs> right? I mean, not to be crass, but the truth is, all of our bodies ultimately will face that. You're, it sounds like you're not asking this, but let me speak to it since it raises in my mind what it might in others. I do not believe cremation is a biblical. Uh, way of for a Christian to take care of their body at, at death. I've preached about it in Genesis. I can't remember which patriarch, <laughs> but um, I, I did preach about it once, and I'm I'm convicted that that ought not to be done. I understand. I hey, I'm in California. I understand it's very expensive, but it's a testimony. I don't think that means people who choose cremation they're not going to go to heaven. But I I think. I don't think the Bible gives Christians that as an example to follow. Now, if you live in Japan, I'm not sure you're given an option. My understanding is certain places, that's the only way it's going to happen. Uh, I guess, you know, space and population. But if you have your ability to decide, my counsel is, I think the biblical, proper biblical means of um, handling a body at death is burial. 
Yeah, not not cremation. It sounds like you're not asking that, but that's that's a relevant, I think, thing to touch on as well. And if if you want more on that issue, I can look up which sermon it was in Genesis and, and get it to you. Yeah. Well, yeah, it probably is. I, I, I think it probably is, but there's kind of a series, and there may have been a reason it was one of the other ones. But yeah, Abraham goes out of his way to get a burial plot for Sarah, right? And then others are buried there. Um, yeah, so I think that is the model. I'm sure it's related to that if it's not that exactly, yeah. Um, but in terms of, it just comes down to, you know what I'm going to do, Maripa? I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to go back and look at Thomas Watson, who answers this a lot. and. Yeah, in his body of divinity, yeah. Uh, I think he'll give you plenty of resolve, but I guess I would just say at the end of the day, the truth is that's all of our, that's going to be the truth for all of us. I mean, if Christ comes back very soon after someone dies, obviously it'll be a different situation, but it doesn't take long for the body to start to decompose. It's not the same, you know. Um, many of us know that firsthand, you know. But you just give it a little while, um, uh, even if it is, in a vault, the way they do things underground now. Our bodies won't be there. But God can do anything, right? And uh, wherever those particles are, I mean, it's it's one of those things, here's the easy answer. I usually say this to kids. Oh, it's an easy answer. How's it going to happen? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, how am I supposed to tell you? I mean, I I can't even imagine. Uh, It's something I think we just trust by faith God's going to do. And uh, I think he'll show his power over death in it. You know, uh, but but remind me to go back to Watson and get the pages reference for you. Okay, I'll, I'll make a copy for you. Yes, Malcolm. Yeah, after four days, he's going to raise him from the dead. His sister uh, uh, objects. Uh, after four days, he's going to st- he stinks, right? Yeah, it doesn't take too long. Yeah, um, especially not in modern <laughs> times, right? If there's not embalming and then all those different things, such as the Egyptians. You know, um, and you'll find some, I mean, you'll find some things like where it's amazing how a body is preserved for a long time. Uh, I saw a picture once, it, I'm not saying it's great to look at it, but it was in a book about something, and um, I think it was a, a priest who had either been sacrificed or something uh, in the, I think it was the Druids or something. I want to say it was in a marshy, muddy area of the Netherlands, something like that. They discovered his body preserved over a long period of time. But let me tell you something, he looked weird. You know, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, he was, you could tell it was a human being, but it was, I mean, it didn't look, it was, it was a very odd thing to see. It wasn't pleasant. It's not like it was perfect, like you couldn't tell the difference. You, you knew that guy had been dead a long time, you know. So this is the hope of the resurrection, though, right? This is the, and maybe that's why in First Corinthians 15, they're denying the resurrection. I think there's other issues going on there, but it's kind of hard to imagine, right? But again, God does anything, right? He can do anything, and he'll show his power over death in this. So, But don't let me forget, I want to get to Thomas Watson. Now I wish I included a little bit more of, I think I didn't include too much of that topic, but uh, I'll get it for you, okay? Don't let me go past the Lord's Day. I'll, get, I, I'll forget. Okay, uh, one last sentence before we go to section three. I want to make sure I read. Contrary to modern liberalism, the confession teaches a bodily, visible, personal resurrection. Modern liberalism started to deny what resurrection actually means. And this is something to watch out with plenty of people in all kinds of church backgrounds. The word is called equivocation. It's a sleight of hand, and I'm really disappointed to see a lot of people who should know better doing it in places I wouldn't hope it would be. 
you don't trick people or trick yourself by saying a word and then confusing it with another term and they're not really the same thing. You don't give the impression of one thing using a word and then it ends up meaning something else and you've made them the same thing and now you're confusing and, and it's easy to trick people. So, for instance, a lot of people who were candidating for a Presbyterian church in the 1920s, 30s, you know, they, start, they don't believe in the resurrection anymore. But they have to swear by the confession that they do. But in their minds, what they mean is, well, I don't mean a literal bodily resurrection. What I mean is we all go through a resurrection of sorts, almost like an enlightening, you know, when we come to the faith or come to Christ. But they don't believe in a, a literal bodily resurrection. And the confession is emphasizing there is a literal bodily resurrection. And I, I know you're wrestling with it, Mrs. Corson. and I know you don't deny it, but I would encourage you to marvel over it in the end, I think. A lot of these things, it's just, it kind of needs to do what the kids do these days. I'm old enough to say that, what the kids do, right? <laughs> right, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, I shouldn't have made myself laugh. Now I'm coughing. All right, let's go to section three. Chapter 20, 32, section three. The bodies of the unjust, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Top of page 220. I'll keep going here. Every person's soul will again have a body. Those who remain corrupt in soul will be sent in corrupted bodies to the dishonor of hell, away from God's comfortable presence, but always under his personal wrath. Before I continue, just think about that again. Like, you know, boy, it's going to feel great when I get over this cough I got, right? You know, like how often we're hoping to get over something our body's struggling with. But the, those who have died outside of Christ, they're already suffering in the intermediate state of hell. And then when they're resurrected, it's only to go back to hell with their bodies that are destined to do nothing but suffer. So, I mean, I don't know. Whatever their ailments might have been at the time maybe continues on. Whatever it is, they're never going to get over their cold. They're never going to get over whatever the suffering is. There's going to be physical torment forever. You know, one of the things that keeps us going is the hope of the resurrection of heaven. We're going to be healed. There's no healing in hell. It's, it's just amazing to me that I guess people do block it out, but it ought to cause more people to run to Christ. It may do that to us. Back to the notes. Those with born-again souls will be given glorified bodies, to live within God's comfortable presence. Notice in both cases, it will be by the power or the authority of Christ. Psalm 2, Revelation 19, and Matthew even says it's by his very voice that everybody will be raised from the grave. That's another thing to remember about Jesus. He will be the one in charge of the resurrection. Like he will be, he will be summoning the dead of all eternity, I shouldn't say all eternity, of all history. His voice, they won't say, no, I'm not coming. They will. They will not be able to not come out of wherever their bodies are, come back together, and have to be there at the judgment day in front of Christ. It'll be Jesus raising them by the power of his voice. And remember, in Revelation, he has the voice of the many waters. Like, I want to encourage the renters. You just were at Niagara Falls. I encourage you to go and think about that. He has the voice of the many rushing waters. You can't hardly hear each other when you're at a place like that, right? Um, or he is the lion. He's the roaring lion, right? Okay. Uh, those who are born again 
with, with born-again souls will be given glorified bodies to live within God's comfortable presence, as we sang about in Psalm 16. Notice in both cases, it will be by the power and authority of Christ. Oh, excuse me, I, I back, went back a little bit. As we think of our loss of loved ones in Christ, it is encouraging to think of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, 315. Van Dixorn provides pastoral comfort for us. He says, when a friend or family member dies, we have lost a traveling companion. They are already home. I think that's really helpful. It recognizes the loss. It acknowledges to be the Philippians if Paul goes and to be with the Lord, which is better for him, right? It acknowledges that you've lost a traveling companion in life. Hold on, Isaac, one second, please. Um, you know, the Renners are helping a lady move, and she's moving to a smaller house, and one of the challenges is she's not getting rid of anything in the smaller house. Why? Because it all has that sense of connection to her traveling partner, who's gone. You have those, that sense of loss as a traveling companion. However, for Christians, we are still traveling, but they're home. They've already gotten there. I encourage you to really have that in view. I'll probably try to remember that quote uh, as we go back to book two with Pilgrim's Progress this week. You know, Christiana's now on the journey, and she'll go ahead of the children and cross the river first. And she'll be home in the celestial city. That gives great comfort. We can feel and recognize the loss of traveling without our traveling companions. But we can rejoice and take peace and comfort that they're home. And that will be there. Maybe we can say, without being too silly, they'll leave the light on for us. Right? And really, Christ has the light on. And as we know in the scriptures, it says there'll, there'll be no darkness. There'll be no night. Christ and the Lamb will be our light. Yes, I'm sorry. Actually, let me go to Isaac first. I forgot. Isaac, what did you want to say or ask? When it says you've lost your traveling companion, mm-hmm. it, Very good, Isaac. Christian had many traveling companions along the way, but they didn't all cross the river together. Very good. I keep telling this guy he's got to think about the ministry. Help me do that. He wants to be an architect. You can do that too. But you, I like, I like the way you think, and I love the way Abraham thinks. What did you want to say, Abraham? Yeah, you know the way you just said that. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. It's not quite. I'm playing off of that phrase we have in on Earth, but yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, so I want to give you some thoughts by Thomas Watson, and again, I, maybe I'll find I'm right. If I do, I'll go ding, 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 highlight this, Mrs. Corson, but uh, I don't think I included too much uh, about your questions, so don't let me forget. I'm confident it's in this section of the book where there's some, some really good stuff. Okay, but let me give you some thoughts by Thomas Watson. If I don't close the whole series with, with notes by Thomas Watson, uh, I'm afraid you might... Uh, might, uh, I'm just joking. I was going to say stone me. You might, you might uh, not let me go home tonight. Okay, yes, Gabriel, what did you want to say, buddy? Um, when you die, um, when you're, when you, when you're, when you're, when you're, um, sick, you, um, drink some water, and then, um, you feel better a little bit. Yes, when we're sick, we want to eat and drink and get things that make us feel better. But there's a point where there's nothing that can be done to save us from dying. Like you took, like, like, mom 
Yeah. So, but here's the thing. This is why we need to eat of Jesus, who's the bread of life, and drink of him and have his living waters, right? Because we're all going to die, so we need Jesus. We need to trust in him to be saved from death by his death on the cross, right? And have his resurrection. Here's something that encourages me. And I'm sure he'll do. Okay, hold on, Gabriel. We'll, we'll talk more later, okay? Because Daddy has a gift at talking too much and not ending on time. So we'll keep talking on the drive home, okay? But here's what I love. Children are talking about death and the resurrection with us, and they care about it, and they're serious. And, and an almost four-year-old, if I say three, he's going to get mad. Three, almost four-year-old. I know you're three and a half. You're closer even to four. Three and three quarters, probably. See, I told you. He's talking about this. Children can and should be allowed to talk about these things. They're going to have to face these things sometimes a lot earlier than we wish they would. They need to be prepared, and especially if it's them facing the river. But uh, let me get back to Thomas Watson now, okay? Um, from the body of divinity. And it's a, it's a bit of a long quote going on to page uh, 221. It's not closing the class, it's closing this section. Um, this is where I mostly quote him because it's specific to this topic. The next topic, I have a real brief quote I found somewhere else, so I won't, I won't make you stay too long with the next string of quotes, okay? And hang in there, we're going to get into millennialism, okay? That's, the, kind of the, that's what I would use as a selling point to come to the class anyways. But here's Thomas Watson. The glory of Christ's kingdom does not stand in worldly pomp and grandeur as other kings, but it is seen in the cheerful sufferings of his people. Christ is the principle of my life. I fetch my spiritual life from Christ as the brand fetches its sap from the excuse me as the branch fetches its sap from the root. Now, pardon me, that's a typo. I got to I'm telling you I went through these things. I did check. I knew I should have checked since I had extra time. Okay, hold on a second. Let me catch that now. I'm going to fix it before I put it online. Sorry for the delay. I fetch my spiritual life from Christ as the branch fetches its sap from the root. Christ is the end of my life. Our whole life is a living Christ. Christ is the joy of my life. Death to a believer is the daybreak of eternal brightness. By the way, I've been thinking, I'm going to come back for some of these for the next funeral I preach. To show fully what a believer's gains are at death were a task too great for an angel. All hyperboles fall short of it. The reward of glory exceeds our very faith. So I want to say that uh, he says quite a lot in this section. How good it's going to be is impossible for us to really fathom or articulate. And then he tries, but he acknowledges regularly, I can't really tell you. There's no way we can really get our brains around how amazing this is. Um, and I, I, I wonder if he doesn't speak that way about uh, understanding the resurrection of the body. But he just says these things are, are really beyond our, our capability to, to fathom. But let us marvel. He goes on, Believers at death shall gain a writ of ease from all sins and troubles. Sin expires with their life. Boy, that really jumped out to me. Sin dies when you die. And you go on living with no more sin. Life begins with a cry and ends with a groan. But at death, all troubles die. 
Believers at death shall gain the glorious sight of God. Intellectually, with the eyes of their mind, which divines call the beatific vision. Two, they shall behold the glorified body of Jesus Christ. It will be infinitely delightful to the saints to see the amiable aspects and smiles of God's face. The saints at death shall not only have a sight of God, but shall enjoy his love. Believers at death shall gain a celestial palace, a house not made with hands, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. It is represented by transparent glass to show its holiness, Revelation 21, 21. Believers at death shall gain the sweet society of glorified saints and angels, which will add to the felicity of heaven. As every star adds some luster to the firmament, in heaven there will be perfect love among the saints. Believers at death shall gain perfection of holiness. At death, the saints will arrive at perfection. Their knowledge will be clear, their sanctity, holiness. At death, the saints will arrive at perfection. Or excuse me, their knowledge will be clear, their sanctity, perfect. Excuse me, I went back a line. Their sun will be in its full meridian splendor. At death, the saints will gain a royal, magnificent feat. Uh, royal, that's supposed to be feast, excuse me. This royal supper of the Lamb will not only satisfy hunger, but prevent it. Isn't that something? It's not just that this feast with the Lamb in heaven will, will satisfy hunger, it will prevent hunger. You'll never be hungry but you'll be able to eat and enjoy it, you know? I kind of can't help but think to joke a little bit, but you know how people say, hey, you want to have some dinner? You want to get some lunch? Yeah, I could eat, you know? <laughs> Maybe I'm not real hungry, but I could eat. Let's go have some, you know, all the time. I'm not hungry, but I could eat. Let's go enjoy eating. They shall hunger no more, Revelation seven sixteen. Nor can there be any surfeit at, that, at this feast because a fresh course will be continually served. New and fresh delights will spring from God. Therefore, the tree of life in paradise is said to bear 12 sorts of fruit. Revelation 22. Two. Faith gives a title to heaven. Death gives the possession. Think what it will be to have always a smiling look from Christ's face. To be brought into the banqueting house and have the banner of his love displayed over us. Oh, ye saints, desire death. It is your ascension day to heaven. A Christian's hope is not in this life, saints, or excuse me, a, a Christian's hope, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my place. Okay, a Christian's hope is not in this life, but he hath hope in his death. Proverbs 14.32. Notice that, he hath hope in his death, the Bible says. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Ecclesiastes 7.1. At death, they are freed from a body of sin. Paul did not cry. This is something I want to highlight here. Paul did not cry out for his affliction or his prison chain, but for the body of sin. Now a believer at death is freed from sin. He is not taken away in, but from his sins. He shall never have a vain, proud thought more. That almost makes me cry. He shall never grieve the Spirit of God anymore. That should make us cry. 
Sin brought death into the world, and death shall carry sin out of the world for the Christian. Death smites a believer as the angel did Peter and made his chains fall off. At death, the saints shall be freed from all the troubles and encumbrances to which this life is subject. You may as well separate weight from lead as trouble from the life of man. There are many things to embitter life and cause trouble, but death frees from all. Care, which we understand as worry. The Greek word for care is to cut the heart in pieces. Fear, the grave buries a Christian's fear. Buries care and worry and it buries fear. Try to imagine never worrying for eternity. Never being afraid of anything forever. This is what you have at death. Labor, page 221. Um, It frees us from labor, Revelation 19.13. It frees us from suffering. The eagle that flies high cannot be stung with the serpent. Think of that. Our souls will be in heaven. Satan can't touch us, can't hurt us. Death gives the soul the wings of an eagle to fly above all the venomous serpents here below. Frees us from temptation. Death will free a child of God from temptation so that he shall never be vexed more with the old serpent. After death has shot its dart, the devil will have done his shooting. Sorrow we spend our years with sighing. It is a valley of tears, but death is the funeral of all our sorrows. That's a phrase I'm going to keep ready for the next funeral. At the funeral, death is the funeral of all our sorrows. At death, the souls of believers pass into glory. By the way, he referenced Revelation 7.17 for that last comment. At death, the souls of believers pass into glory. Death brings the removal of all evils and the attainment of all things. Glory is a state made perfect by the gathering together of every good. God is an infinite, inexhaustible fountain of joy. Through uh, Through Christ's flesh, some rays and beams of the Godhead will gloriously display themselves like at the Mount of Transfiguration. God's excellent majesty would overwhelm us, but through the veil of Christ's flesh, we shall behold the divine glory. Our seeing God in heaven will be without weariness. The saints will never be weary of seeing God, for God being an infinite, infinite, there shall be every moment new and fresh delight springing from him into their souls. I want to stop there and highlight what he's saying there, because earlier he said, We'll, we'll never get bored with the menu. It'll be new and fresh and enjoy, like the first time we had it every time. He says, for instance, there's 12 trees of life to eat of now, you know. And here he says, we'll, we'll never get bored with God. Some people say, won't you get bored in heaven? No. God is infinite. You'll always be having a new experience of God, a new and growth. We'll never infinitely know him, but we'll always be growing in our uh, intimate knowledge of him. He's infinite, so we'll ju- it'll always be like, oh, wow. I mean, think about when you like to go back to some place you like to visit or see an old friend. You know, I'm pretty sure your, your beloved friends in Pennsylvania just visited for two weeks. You would love to go back and see him again right now, right? We're not going to let you because we missed you. But, I mean, you know, and isn't the, the glorious idea, not only God, but one another in heaven will never 
You don't go tired of being with your loved ones, right? You know, you wish you had more time. And with God, he's infinite. I mean, it will just be a new experience every time. Whoops. Okay, that's for next week. I'll just put those there. Hold on. <laughs> Sorry. You're seeing the effects of me having to go to the hospital at 2 in the morning and then get up and take the kids to the dentist early in the day. It's starting to hit me a little bit. I apologize. But uh, I want to really emphasize what he's saying there. You're never going to get bored in heaven. Heaven will always be like this new, fresh, wow. I mean, just think about that, you know. I mean, that's why we like to go on vacation, you know. This this just can be like every day in God's presence. Back to the notes. Love has joy in it. The love, uh, to love beauty is delightful. God's amazing beauty will attract the saints' love, and it will be their heaven to love him. This is the felicity of heaven, to be in the sweet embraces of God's love, to be sunning ourselves in the light of God's countenance. And that's the end of Psalm 16 we sang, right? Our knowledge in heaven shall not be diminished, but increased. We shall not only know our friends and godly relations, but those glorified saints whom we never saw before. It must be so, for society without acquaintance is not comfortable. Let's stop and think about that. If you go to a party and you don't know anybody, do you have a good time? If you don't feel like you can introduce yourself, and there's nobody you really feel like wants to talk to you, oh, you're with a lot of people, but I mean, you don't know anybody, right? Why do some men like to say, why do I pick on men? I think you know why. But why do some people say, I don't want to go to that party? I don't know anybody that's going to be there, right? He says in heaven, not only will we know those we knew on earth, we're going to know everybody else. Now, I imagine that we'll have a overtime experience because we're not infinite like God. We can't be everywhere like God. But we're going to, I mean, you know, we kind of say, who do you want to meet in heaven? I mean, we're going to know over time, I think it's safe to say, we're going to know Peter, Paul, we're going to know John Calvin, John Knox. I mean, it's incredible to think about. And we're going to know, as you know, Mrs. Schaefer had said, who's the most important person? Somebody asked her once at, I believe it was Covenant College, who's the most important Christian in the world right now? She says, I don't know. Uh, whoever it is, none of us will ever know who that is. In God's estimation, right? We'll know that person that we never knew about that. In God's eyes, you all should be coming to that door knocking on, when can I have dinner with you? Uh, let me go to you real quick, but I think, Rachel, you raised your hand first. Uh, you think we're not going to forget, right? No. meet somebody, we're never going to forget their face or their name. No, because who we are includes our memory, right? Uh, yeah, we'll know people. Um, uh, how we deal with all those things will be perfected by God, right, in terms of... Uh, different things may be less pleasant, but uh, but yeah, we'll have a memory, and that will be part. There will be there's a reunion of sorts, but then it's more than that. It's like, hey, let me introduce you. You know, one of our loved ones of us, Hey, I want to introduce you. I've been I've been getting to know um, Priscilla and Aquila over here. You got to meet these guys. They are a hoot. You know, like I don't know. I mean, I don't mean to make too light of it, but just imagine, like you're gonna know, you're gonna have a familiar, comfortable familiarity with. More people than you've ever met before. You, you're gonna, that's really a, a lovely thing he's drawing to our attention. Was that? Right, Peter. That's, you know, and I think he brings that up. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he does. Good job, Mr. Renner. Um, Peter is familiar with Moses and Elijah, but he never met them. But he knows who they are. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, okay, let me get back to the notes just so I don't keep you here until Saturday because we have to go get some rest. Ladies got to study tomorrow night and got to be ready to have the men cook breakfast Saturday morning. So let's, let's try to keep me on. But I'm enjoying interacting with you a lot. 
Um, as you know, it's dangerous to get me off my notes, though. So let me get back on here. Um, our knowledge in heaven. No, I, I went past that. Uh, Matthew, where it says Matthew um, uh, 17.3. That's where I need to pick it up. Uh, Matthew 17.3. Surely in heaven the saints shall know one another and be infinitely delighted in each other's company. What is happiness but uh, to know one another? Oh, excuse me, I think I lost. What is happiness... Uh, but the essence of holiness. Sorry, this is an, a new part of his quote. What is happiness but the essence of holiness? At death, believers shall arrive at perfection of grace. Here, we can have no rest, tossed and turned as a ball on racket. How can a ship rest in a storm? But after death, the saints get into their haven. A Christian, after his weary marches and battles, shall put off his bloody armor and rest himself upon the bosom of Jesus, the bed of perfume. When death has given the saints the wings of a dove, then shall they fly away to the paradise and be at rest. They pass immediately after death into glory. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, imagine, you know, I don't think most of us have been on big ships across the, country, across the oceans and things. That would have been... You know, that's often the idea of coming into the harbor or haven, you know. But think about maybe like if you're on an airplane and, and uh, lots of turbulence and you think you might die. I was, on a, I was in a storm once like that as a kid. A lot of crazy things happened on that plane, I'll tell you later. Fernando had an experience like that too. And then you actually make it to the ground alive. It's not a perfect illustration, but that idea of heaven is getting through the storm, no more storms, safe forever. Back to the notes, almost done with Thomas Watson. And as the soul does not die, so neither does it sleep. Verse 8, let none be so vain as to talk of purgatory. A soul purged by Christ's blood needs no fire of purgatory, but goes immediately from a deathbed into a glorified state. See what little cause believers have to fear death when it brings such glorious benefits. What hurt does death but take us from among fiery serpents and place us among angels? We shall taste of those joys of paradise which exceed our faith and may be better felt than can be expressed. Christ did not rise from the dead as a private person, but as the public head of the church and the head being raised, the rest of the body shall not always lie in the grave. Seeing you expect your bodies shall rise to glory, keep them unspotted from sin. If your bodies glorify God, God will glorify your bodies. Well, uh, thanks for bearing for, with that very long quote. It was such a crescendo to the study. And as I was reading, I'm like, oh, I can't not share that with him. Oh, I got to share that too. And I, I hope you understand, <laughs> especially as it kind of closes and leads us to everything. Uh, we're going to go to the next chapter, and then I have a brief quote from Watson to close things out. Chapter 33 of The Last Judgment. You know, very much related, but, you know, of course, most Christians are going to have died before the last judgment and the resurrection. So he's mostly talking about the intermediate state and uh, before that time when our bodies are raised. But we'll talk more about that now. Of the Last Judgment, chapter 33, has some introductory comments. Van Dixorn draws our attention to the intention of this last section of the confession. And he says, the focus of this chapter is to the end. Uh, excuse me, the focus of this chapter to the end is personal rather than cosmological. Instead of speculation, the final note in this confession of faith is one of persuasion. 
A reminder of the return of Christ is a call to careful thinking and living. Packer writes, you know, so as we get here, they bring it home personally. Where are you with Christ? Where will you be in eternity? That's the point. Like, it's not just mostly philosophizing, thinking in general. It's about where are you right now? What's going to happen to you in the end? And that's how we need to be thinking about this. Packer writes, the certainty of final judgment forms the frame within which the New Testament message of saving grace is set. Knowledge of future judgment is always a summons to present repentance. New Testament teaching about hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that as heaven will be better than we could dream, so hell will be worse than we can conceive. R.C. Sproul points out the importance of talking about hell and judgment in the gospel ministry. He says, we soften the gospel in our day. People are invited to come to Christ. That was not how the apostles did it. An invitation is something that we can politely decline with impunity. But a command cannot be declined with impunity. Paul said that God commands everyone everywhere to repent. We decline that command at our own peril. He's saying that's how the gospel needs to be preached. It's not an invitation to respectfully decline. Oh, okay, well, maybe later. No, what did Jesus say? What did he say again? Go out and preach. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Further, John Murray writes, the church must constantly live and bear its witness in the conviction of the impending judgment. The summons to repentance, faith, and the obedience of the gospel receives its most urgent sanction from the certainty of the account that will be rendered to Christ as judge of all. And the church must also bear witness to the grandeur of the hope which the judgment presents, the manifestation and vindication of the glory of God. And again, this burden began Pilgrim's progress. Why did Pilgrim go out on his pilgrimage? Why did Christian go out on his pilgrimage? Yes, to get to the celestial city, but what motivated him to begin moving? The fires of hell, the city of destruction. And as, again, R.C. Sproul said once, someone asked him on campus years ago, Brother, are you saved? And he asked him, saved from what? Preaching about hell and judgment is a significant part of the gospel. Sinners need to be saved and can only be saved through Christ. Warning of judgment day and eternal hell, suffering soul and body, and pointing them to the cross where Christ took that upon himself in a moment as eternal God in his humanity to be able to take that away from us, whosoever will be saved and turn to him. Okay, Confession of Faith 33, chapter 33, section 1. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a final appointed day during which King Jesus will judge the whole world and it will be completely comprehensive and totally thorough. 
By the way, children, uh, you know, I can't help but think of our younger ones sometimes when they're trying to escape the wrath of dad, you know, or sometimes it's more just kind of joking around, you know, they're trying to escape being called back to clean up whatever they needed to clean or, you know, they are always found, you know. It's kind of funny, one of our little guys says, I'm going to go hide under my bed where no one will find me. <laughs> okay, under your bed that is, you know, <laughs> you know, it's so funny and you like to come in and, where is he? And, oh, <laughs> He's under the bed, you know. I'm going to hide my things under my bed so nobody finds them, you know. It's kind of cute. But, but the thing is, is we think we can hide. What does Jesus say? You can't hide under the rocks. No one will be able to hide under the rocks in the caves. Everyone will be found. Just as in the garden. God was walking in the garden, and they were naked, and he came and confronted them. God the Father has given Jesus, the God-man, all authority to judge men and fallen angels, and he will. How sobering to know that even we Christians all will give an account of every thought, word, and deed before Jesus and the world. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Now we'll say thank you Jesus for saving, but, but still, every thought, word, and deed we're going to give an account for. That's motivation to grow in sanctification, eh? Yes, Abraham. Uh, I'm in the middle of page 222, uh, letter, middle of letter A. Yeah, Gabe. When I was in my room, mm-hmm. I saw a spider in my room. You did? You saw a spider, yeah? That can be scary, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got a little fire on my, on my Yeah, we need to put some spider traps out. Okay. Okay. I can see how scary spiders, I can see how that could come up. But let's get back to the notes, okay? Everything we try and hide now will be exposed by God before everyone. Quote, it is true that we will not face condemnation, but we will still under, undergo an evaluation, R.C. Sproul. Makes me think about, you know, you get, you get to keep your job, but there is an annual review often, you know, <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about things, and really it's meant to improve. It's not quite the same thing, but we won't go undergo condemnation, but there will be an evaluation. Thus, our only hope, by the way, will not only say thank you for saving me from those sins, but we'll also say thank you for doing those good works in me, Jesus, whatever you account as worthy in you. Um, Thus, our only hope is to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. Men today mock the idea of a final judgment. They always have. But as in the day of Noah, so it will be on the last day. 2 Peter 3, 1-13. As in the days of Noah. Now that is something to remember as it relates to eschatology, end times theology, the millennium. We'll get into that. As in the days of Noah, Jesus says. Uh, But there was a major judgment and nobody was taking it seriously. Right? Letter B. By the way, let let me say this. Being a Christian is kind of like being Noah, right? He's building a boat. And it's kind of like, what's a boat for at that time? Right? You know, there hadn't been the flood. There wasn't the same kind of waters all over the earth. I mean, he must have just thought the guy was a goof right? For a long time, right? About a century. It's kind of like that for Christians. We're building the house, the church, and everybody's like, why? What, what, what are you wasting your time? What are you doing? You know? But judgment's coming back, Jesus says, like the days of Noah, and it will be this time a flood of what? Not water, fire. But it'll be very much the same. All right, letter B. Here it is important to explain the variant views of end times theology or eschatology. Eschatos, related to the word end. Uh, see Williamson's chart in the appendix below. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you there in a moment. Notice 
against dispensationalism, premillennialism, which Williamson rightly calls a recent innovation, the judgment will involve Christians as well as non-Christians. And it will be the final day of human history, immediately following the general resurrection. According to Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, see also, and this might be something you want to highlight. Hey, are we in the last day? Are we in the end times? Are we in the last days? Yes! Everybody always says, are we in, you think we're in the end times yet? Seems like a lot of stuff is happening. We've been in the last days since Christ went to heaven. Okay, I'll get into more of that, but notice... Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, 2 Timothy 3, 1, James 5, 3, 2 Peter 3, 3, and there's more you could go to. We are already in the last days. The time between Christ's first and second coming, which John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah indicated has begun. Study the word tribulation in the New Testament in light of Revelation 1, verse 9, and you will see clearly that we are already in it. While your pastor is a passionate amillennialist, and I'll get into this more, no literal thousand years of the last days, which we are presently in and which best explains the already not yet Christian experience, he concedes that the confession allows room for all end times views except dispensational premillennialism, yet its language best fits amillennialism. Now that's a bit of a dated note. I'm working on a series of articles with others to demonstrate that all historic confessions have taught on millennialism, including the Westminster Standards, which I, there's a whole bunch of guys that are going to get mad at me right now. Um, so I'm, and, and, I, and I have a lot of quotes by guys like Jay Adams, and um, uh, the book I'm going to highly recommend by uh, Kim Riddlebarger. There's a lot of quotes. David Engelsman, Engelsma, the history of the church, the confessions of the church have always taught what we refer to now as amillennialism, the, the idea of it. It would be um, uh, you know, wrong to say they always had that term, but that idea was there. Uh, we'll get back to that more. But amillennialism best interprets the end times of our confession. The proper lens of the covenant of grace and the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the view that the Old and New Testament saints are all one in the same church called Israel. It also correctly interprets certain texts literarily, recognizing the typology of symbolism, excuse me, of apocalyptic literature, such as Daniel and Revelation. You can go listen to my series we did Wednesday nights years ago on the book of Revelation, and I will draw these things out in the text. Now, here's one example, page 224, we're at the top. For instance, the chain of Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2, what was it made of? Don't look at the notes. What was the chain that binds Satan? By the way, he's still bound right now. It's representing that Satan doesn't have the influence he used to have in the world. When Christ come, he bound Satan. Still has his influence, but he's bound until Christ comes back. But what was the chain made of, do you think? Any guesses? What is the chain made of that Satan is bound by? Huh? Somebody guesses steel. Anybody else have a guess? Is, is Satan physical? He's a spirit, right? Like the angels, he's a fallen angel. There's no body, there's no physical essence to bind, right? So I'll let you look. I wanted to make you think about it. That's not literal material. It is symbolically representing Christ's actual but spiritual binding of Satan for a thousand years, which symbolizes perfect completion while the church advances throughout the world. So the chain, you miss the point, right? Nobody worries about what the chain is made of because it's not the point. It is an image communicating a spiritual truth. Satan is bound by Jesus right now. 
He doesn't have the influence he used to have. And when Christ comes back, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now is the time to go out with the gospel. The influence of the church can be had in a way that it was constrained before Christ came. That's why all the demons were responding when Jesus came. Because they were running the show. Okay, Pastor Grant staunchly teaches from an amillennial interpretation. I'm kind of getting a little silly here, but without apology. I get beat up a lot for it in certain circles. Or it could be called realized eschatology. By the way, I can only give you so much tonight. I give you a boatload of articles and books to read if you want to get into this more. But our denomination that we're looking at, the RPCGA, allows other views, and they have an emphasis on post-millennialism. Due to the historical context, many of the assembly did think the end of the world was near. As we read through it, notice how they, it seems like it's coming. Okay? Now, I want to show you this diagram right here. Okay? And I will post these notes as I have with the lectures online and sermon audio, so anyone listening later can, can look at this. On page 224, look how simple amillennialism is. Now, what does amillennial mean? Millennial is talking about the thousand years spoken of in Revelation, right? Now, you've got to interpret that with all the other scriptures that talk about the end times, okay? It, it literally means no millennium, but that's not really what it means. It means no literal thousand years. It means a perfect time because the number 10 and the multiplications of 10 in scripture represent perfection and completion. And what it is communicating in the imagery of all the scriptures is a perfect, complete time. God's perfect plan, he knows the time Christ came, inaugurating the kingdom, between the time he comes back to consummate the kingdom. That's the thousand years, but it's not a literal thousand years. The thousand years represent the perfect time when God does all these things, okay? Uh, and I'll, I'll, I won't be able to bear all that out, but I'm giving you a lot to work with if you want to see it. But here you go. You see a lot of diagrams, especially with dispensationalism, which we do reject. The confession would not allow. Uh, you see a lot. Of, it's so complicated, right? You just can't follow it. It's, not, it's just this simple, beloved. And, and that's what I want to encourage you. It's just this simple. Look, Christ comes represented by the cross. We're in the millennium age, which is also the church age, which is also the time of tribulation. And then there's the second coming of Christ in the final <coughs> judgment, and it's done eternity. And if you read all the scriptures, that's clearly what it teaches. Okay, Christ has come. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it's over. We don't need to be preparing tapes to leave for those left behind. No one will be left behind. We'll all be raised for the judgment, and then some will be sent to hell, and the others get to go to heaven. Okay? It's, that's it. It's that simple. And we are in the last days. We are in the end times. And the, what the Scripture is communicating, it, God's perfect timing, it all happens. There's nothing to worry about. What you need to do is be ready for when Christ comes back. Like a thief in the night, you don't know when it is. You can't predict it. Just be ready. Now, one thing I would say, I might get into the notes, but when Jesus says the end will be like the time of Noah, were there a lot of people on the boat? I'm throwing that question now rhetorically to a certain eschatological view. Were there a lot of people on the boat? Just a few, right? Okay. Um, section 33, uh, chapter 33, section 2. I'm holding off on a few thoughts because I'm pretty sure I'll get to them. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked 
who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let me explain this a bit. The last day of judgment will praise God's glory in two ways. Number one, his mercy toward the elect. Number two, his judgment toward the reprobate. Van Dixhorn writes, God's people are finally on judgment day at their wisest. On the same day, God's enemies are at their most foolish. Although the first focus on the final day will be on God, not man. Look again at the incredible contrast of the two places to which each group shall go. Now we already thought about it with the intermediate state before their last judgment, but now the resurrection and last judgment, look at the same horrible, well, I should say striking contrast. Uh, The one place will be very wonderful. The other will be very horrible. This is why we should take Jesus Christ and life in his church very seriously. We should redeem our time each day with our focus on the end. God will have the last laugh, and we want to be laughed with, not at. Psalm 2, verse 4. Section 3 of Confession of Faith, 33. As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be, uh, be always watchful, because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the way we should be anticipating the end. He's coming at any moment. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Jesus wants us to be always watchful. This is why we don't know the day of his coming. We're to be getting ready every moment. Psalm 45, Revelation 19, 21. Quote, the return of the king marks the end of all opportunity to repent. When Jesus returns, every rebel should want to have made his peace with God already. When Jesus returns, every Christian should want to be found awake in serving rather than awash in sin. Judgment Day, uh, that is uh, Van Dixhorn, Judgment Day will come at any moment, like a thief in the night, like lightning across the sky. Quote, the designed effect of the attitude of uncertainty with regard to the time of the second advent and general judgment in which the saints are placed is that they should regard it as always immediately impending, that they should look forward to it with solemn awe and yet with joyful confidence, and hence in view of it be incited to the performance of duty and the attainment of holiness and comforted in sorrow. Also Van Dixhorn. This view of the end is intended to, quote, deter lazy, sinful lives and give greater consolation for the godly that are mocked in this world and by worldly churches and Christians. Our concerns will be proven to be wise and we will be vindicated by King Jesus before those who shirk his authority over our lives presently. May we all indeed by these thoughts, quote, be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. That's the, that needs to be the theme of our lives. It needs to be the, the reality of how we're living. That needs to be our understanding of the end times. Any moment, be ready now. Cry out, he comes at any moment. Because, by the way, beloved, 
The kingdom is only consummated at his second coming. The time of the golden age is only when Jesus comes back, never before. This is a church membership class, and this is what the church is all about. The kingdom of heaven taking over their present world by King Jesus, who is soon to return, to consummate it on judgment day, to rescue his people from this world. This is what the world's history is about from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22.21. This is what your life as a Christian must be about, watching for the last day. Why does Satan use entertainment in all its forms so aggressively? To keep you watching everything but for Judgment Day. So you are not ready for it when it comes. Review Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 18 with 15, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Gordon H. Clark notes, The strategy of the humanists is to occupy the time with the attention of children to such an extent that they will have no opportunity to hear the gospel. The pastor's solemn duty is to constantly call you to take your eyes off the world so that you will watch and be ready for the coming of King Jesus. And by the way, uh, the pastor was comforted recently seeing some new things online he wasn't aware of before. To think of what Jesus says, blessed are you when people say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Such were the prophets persecuted before you. The pastor's job is to call people to repent. And just like before in the history of the church and in the Bible, people don't like it. Look at Moses' ministry. Even though they knew, they were there, they knew what he was speaking was truth, they still didn't want to do what he said. But the pastor's job is to call people to bow before King Jesus, to be saved and serve him as the king. To call you to do exactly the opposite of your natural tendencies and desires. For the Son of Man, I have made thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning for me. Ezekiel 3.17. By the way, as in Jeremiah, this is in contrast to the false prophets and the false pastors who were what? Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Making people happy in their sins. God is saying, don't be a false prophet. Preach repentance. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Ezekiel 33, 6-7. He says, if you don't preach the truth and warn people about their sins, they'll be guilty of their sins, but their blood will be on your hands. If you preach the truth and warn people, you are not culpable for their blood if they don't repent. Otherwise, I'll hold you, I'll hold you for it. That's serious about elders too and how we rule, govern. Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, I taught you for three years the whole counsel of God, house to house and publicly. I am, I, wash, I am free of your blood. I've done my job. Whatever you do with it, your blood is not on my hands because I've told you. You know, because to tell people about being saved includes telling them about their sin. Okay. And uh, to talk about salvation is to help them change with their sins. 
according to the word of God. Um, Similarly, when Paul, oh, I give it to you now. When Paul speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus, upon his departure, never to return, Acts 20, 18 to 31, he says, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Notice he says, I don't have your blood on my hands because I taught you the whole counsel of God. And that's why we're trying to go through the whole Bible together in the morning through the Old Testament. You know, we come up with things we have to deal with. A lot of people don't because they don't go through the books, through all the words. They don't go consecutively. And they're often going to skip over things thematically. They don't wrestle and deal with things that God would have us wrestle and deal with. Like the Puritans. Whether or not they necessarily came to all the things we've come to. We've got to go through the whole word of God Line upon line. And remember what we learned of that scripture a little while ago in Isaiah. Even though you won't believe it. We have to. I don't understand how a pastor could choose not to teach what the word says. Applying it the way it's to be applied. Fearing God and not men. Including so many of them that will go to many other pastors and people to say all kinds of things against us but you still got to face God and they still have to face God with the word of God God will hold the blood of the unrepentant church upon the watchmen if they do not warn the people because they are more afraid of the wrath of man than of God you are called again to watch for the judgment Look to Jesus on the cross to be concerned to have yourself spared of what he went through there for you would have to endure it for eternity in the lake of fire. And watch for Jesus' return to vindicate you before the world for your faith in him and walk of faith with and for him. You should eagerly anticipate his glorious return for it is your glory. In fact, after your public acknowledgement and acquittal, based on already having been justified on earth, you will join Jesus in judging fallen angels and men. Westminster Larger Catechism 90. Before entering as Christ's bride into final glory with the comfortable presence of the Father. In fact, you should look forward to Judgment Day. And I quote Van Dixhorn again. It is in the righteousness of Christ that we will stand. 
we will find no real reason to be proud of ourselves before the judgment seat of God, nor will we find reason to fear. There is a note of joyful expectation in the final line of this confession that reflects the joyful and blessed hope of the scriptures. Christians are not braced for the coming of the Lord, anxiously worrying about his arrival. We are eager for his coming, hoping to be the generation that will hold the door open for him. Luke 12, 36. I'm going to spend a little extra time pointing out some suggested readings and things for you because I'm not able to get into a lot of stuff like the millennium and I'm sure is unsatisfying unless I point you to a lot of other resources, including things we've, we've taught and preached here. But that usually would be where I close this whole study, but I've got to give you some Thomas Watson. All right, so we're going to close with this and this. A few things to highlight if you want to study more and then what to be ready for, for next week for our last class to wrap things up. Thomas Watson. We must all appear. The greatness of men's persons does not exempt them from Christ's tribunal. Kings and captains are brought in, trembling before the throne. Revelation 6.15 Such as will not hear the trumpet of the gospel sound, repent and believe, shall hear the trumpet of the archangel sounding, Arise and be judged. At that day, Christ their judge will own Christians by name. Those whom the world scorned and looked upon as madmen and fools, Christ will take by the hand and openly acknowledge to be his favorites. The saints shall be fully crowned with the enjoyment of God forever. They shall be in his sweet presence, in whose presence is fullness of joy quoting Psalm 16 that we sang this evening. And this shall be forever. The end. (laughs) Or should I say, the beginning. I would like to point out a few suggested readings for you. Um, The first, you'll notice a number of resources, uh, some by us, some of our own sermons, uh, giving a lot of attention to the intermediate state, especially to help us facing death before the resurrection and the judgment day uh, and enduring it with the loss of our traveling companions uh, along the way of our pilgrimage. Uh, I'm not going to read through them all, but what I do want to highlight at the end of page 226, A Case for Amillennialism. This is my go-to book, and I've many times reviewed it, and you can, you can listen to his lectures online through the book. Kim Riddlebarger, he, has, he really has done a lot of work on this. A Case for Amillennialism. If you were only to read one book, this is a very easy thing to read, but it is very thorough, teaching why amillennialism is the right eschatological view of end times theology. And and I'm going to give you a little more to think about with millennialism, but uh, it deals with a lot of other issues, like the Olivet Discourse. It deals with postmillennialism, premillennialism, and and very well done and very uh, amicable. Okay, page 227. Uh, there, there's a few more things I want to highlight. One other book I would highlight in our library, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson, uh, is a great one. Uh, a Defense of Amillennialism by David Engelsma. Um, by the way, the EPC Australia that we're very, very close with, they require amillennialism, at least of the ministers. Um, okay. The Time is at Hand by Jay Adams. I go over that in the Revelation class, and uh, he makes... 
he makes no bones about it. Amillennialism is the historic view of the Reformed Church, the ancient church. It's the confessional view. It's the creedal view of all the church. And uh, I'm researching that for an article series to, to see if that bears out, but it uh, intrigues me. Um, okay, you look away down PRPC's The Revelation, a Wednesday night study. If you go to our sermon audio page, you can listen through our very thorough, long teaching through the book of Revelation, and I get into all the eschatology stuff in a lot of detail. Um, but what I really want to highlight about that, there's a special four-part mini-series, more on the millennium, more on the millennium, part one, two, three, four, on Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. So if you want a lot of attention, and that's partly, well, I, can't, I just can't do everything in this class, right? But I want to give you a lot of resources and if you guys want to review something like this, we can do that. I've always encouraged, if you want Pastor Nelder to come and study some of these things with you, if you're taking the class, possibly going to be a member, you know, we can, we can get into anything like this more. There's so much to go with. It's all on our website, too, you can link to. So I want to highlight especially more on the millennium in our Revelation study of 20, Revelation 21 to 15. And I'm sorry I'm keeping you a little bit longer, but, uh, you know, I didn't give you a whole lot on this, so I want to show you where there's a whole lot I can give you on it, okay? Of our own resources besides the other things I know. And admittedly, I'm not talking about all of them. Here's another thing I really want to highlight for you. Uh, this is really important to be thinking about uh, the objections of post-millennialism. This is kind of the, the, key, the key scripture. Matthew chapter 24 and 25. When I preached through the gospel of Matthew, you might remember I gave... A lot of extra study to be ready for this. these two sermons. Um, uh, if you go to the preaching of Matthew 24 and 25 on the Olivet Discourse, that addresses a lot of related issues to millennial views, okay? And answering a lot of post-millennial stuff. Um, uh, let's see, Pauline, yeah, those are the main things I want to highlight if you want to get into that a lot more, okay? Um, and I give you on page 220, well, it says page 228, I've included what I referred, referred to earlier. A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, you see the different eschatological views. Classic pre-mill, modern dispensational pre-mill. By the way, letter B we reject from confession. Uh, Post-millennialism, letter C, which is very popular, especially in Presbyterian circles. Um, uh, Amillennialism, letter D, which is what I'm pointing to. You'll notice it's much simpler with letter D. Go back to the earlier diagram I gave you to see why amillennialism is just so simply what the scriptures are teaching when you look at all the scriptures together. And you don't hone in and focus on one thing and make everything else interpreted by it. But you interpret difficult scriptures by the broadness of all the other scriptures talking about the same topic from different angles that are more clear. Which is, by the way, a hermeneutical principle of our confession and how we should be following it. Okay, but I want you to look, I encourage you to look at that chart. I won't go through it with you, but that can get into it more. So next week, if you're taking the class... Uh, uh, formally looking to uh, go into, you know, graduate to communicate membership status or transfer in. Um, I, I want to show you, you have a little bit more to read in the larger and shorter catechism and their corresponding scriptures. And I want you to re review the membership vows that were handed out at the beginning of class. Next week is going to be a bit of a wrapping it up. It will also give you some resources on questions that have been asked in previous classes. And I went and did some study and provided answers on them. So you'll have a little bit of some miscellaneous things that do come up a lot. So I'll give you that. But we'll, we'll mostly also just review, okay, the class is done. Uh, you who are taking it because you're looking to join the church or graduate and to be able to take the Lord's Supper, 
um, we'll review what's next for you, okay? But all of you who are members and you're not taking the class for that reason, don't worry, there'll still be some, some good stuff to have for devotions together, okay? Thank you for staying very, 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 very long um, and for going through a very, very long class with very, very, very long classes. Great questions. I really enjoyed it with you a lot. I hope it's useful to you. And I do intend that, you know, keep this on your bookshelf. And remember, I try to uh, flesh out a lot in the confession that's intended to give you Christians the main things you need to know for the Christian faith and to be able to share the Christian faith. And I give you a lot of footnotes as well to be able to try to address most of the things that are going to come up. And again, in this eschatology section, you look at the footnotes, there's, there's a lot more resources. So I hope you keep it on your bookshelf, blow the dust off sometimes. You know, I think we might have gone over that in class. I'm going to go back and look what's said about it and what resources are given to me for further study. Okay, let me close this in prayer and thank you very, very much. And just a reminder, please come back after next week. We're going to start something a lot uh, simpler and easy to have short classes with for a while. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we do thank you that you heal not only our iniquities, but our infirmities, that you will give us holy resurrected bodies, that there'll be no more tears or separation or death, no more sea, no more night and darkness. We will never sin. We will never be sinned against. We will be before you in everlasting life and light and love. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us from eternal hell and all its horror. As we looked at not too long ago, hell is horrifying. But heaven is wonderful. As, as we think about Psalm 16 again and the resurrection of Christ, in thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we say together in the Spirit, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And all your people said, Amen. Amen.